Hi, I'm Ryan the Necromantic Rules Guy. I'm Ben the Whodunit Player. I'm Helen the Polearm Wielding Storyteller. And I'm Jared the Improv Troop Game Master, and together we are the Starting Equipment Podcast. Today we'll be reviewing three games in a combined episode. These are indie darlings. These are small presses and independent creators that we love. Not Paizo, Wizards of the Coast, Onyx Path... Get that crap out of here. Today we're talking about the little guys. These games are also quick to read and quick to start playing. So rather than stretch each of them into an hour-long episode, we decided to combine them into one. The games we picked to be our indie darlings this episode are Brindlewood Bay by Jason Cordova of Gauntlet Publishing, The Plays The Thing by Mark Truman of Magpie Games, Yay! and The Empire Undying by Lara Turner of Glaive Gizarm Games. To be clear, all three of these games are worth your money. They're also all under $10, so just go ahead and buy them. Brindlewood Bay is a little bit more if you want everything. It's still pretty cheap. Uh, it also has a Kickstarter coming out to it for a hardback copy. <gasps> I think yeah. that just launched today as we're recording this. Well, if it did, I have an excellent thing to add into our first episode. So for this, we're not going to use the same structure we use for our normal episodes. Instead, we're going to focus on giving an initial description and summary of the game settings. Mechanics, then we're going to dive right into why this game hooked us, or maybe stabbed us. For all the games we talk about here today, you can find information about them and their creators on our website. We'll do our best to make sure everything is cited there appropriately. We really want to give particularly since these are smaller publishers, we really want to give them credit because we think they're great. First up, we're going to start with Brindlewood Bay by Jason Cordova. Uh, Ryan discovered this one for us. And secret message, part of the reason we're reviewing this now is because we plan to do a one-shot of it later in the season. So what's the game's deal? What's exciting about Brindlewood Bay? So you know how your grandma goes out to a meal at least once a week with other old ladies. They have a good time, share whatever hot goss is going on in their world. What if instead of playing matchmaker, they were solving murders that have connections to cults and Lovecraftian overtones? It brings the focus to a population that is almost always in the background of media and frankly and sadly our lives, older women. And they talk about things that are of interest to them, not just their children or men. So I hadn't thought about game in that context myself until I read a Twitter thread by the author highlighting this element, particularly as a function of campaign play, sincerely centering the inner lives and the stories of elderly women, uh, not just for the lives they have already lived, but the lives they are still living. And it really hit me personally kind of hard, like in a good way, when I thought about it more, like, because I would love to be an 80 year old woman one day and frequently 80 year old women are a punchline or a stereotype or just invisible in our stories and our lives and that's society that's misogyny i won't get into all of that i'm not fully conversant on the depth of that issue from anything other than a, than my limited personal standpoint but suffice to say i deeply appreciate the thoughtfulness that went into designing that aspect of this game and i saw brindlewood bay in a new special light after that. Okay, so you've decided that you want to be a grandma solving mysteries. How do you play? How do you do it? So first of all, only players are going to roll dice. And that's going to be 2d6 plus an ability modifier with a sum used to determine the outcome. That will be your usual roll. Other modifiers might be circumstantial or come from negative conditions or aspects gained from role play or events that penalize a character until they are removed. Advantage and disadvantage allow you to roll three dice and pick either the higher or the lower two, respectively. There are multiple moves. 
both general moves and special maven moves, which are unique to a character, which are catch-all buckets that give you a framework for the scope of an action and its success or failure. Oh, so this comes from Powered by the Apocalypse. And these are not meant to be limitations. It's not supposed to be, these are the only things you can do. But it's a way to add some structure and abstraction for both the players and the keeper to adapt and improv and roleplay to how the dice roll. The storyteller is called the keeper in this game, just for clarification's sake. And these moves aren't super specific things like I swing an axe or whatever, like that some more crunchy rule systems have. They're, you know, like metal in someone's affairs is a move, right? You know, it's big picture stuff. A move will tell you generally what you're rolling and what benefits there will be for success and what complications will be on the table, regardless of whether you succeed or fail. It's kind of similar to how Monster Hearts and City of Mists do things. Uh, both of those also have a real powered by the apocalypse feel in their blood. They have a similar framework for how they're set up. Okay, so the players are fully engaged in helping to flesh out their little seaside town and their neighbors. In fact, the text advises the storyteller, or the keeper, to hand over the reins and let the players shape the story too. And the keeper doesn't know what's at the end any more than the mavens do, because the clues are supposed to be improvised within the wider framework of the mystery. The mystery mavens are going to generate clues by meddling, using the meddling action at different points of interest relevant to the mystery, and after accumulating basically as many clues Clues as you have time for or want, and it's going to affect one of your roles later. The intense conversation happens in front of the cork board that's covered in post-its and string. And, and they do it over charcuterie and ginger ale or over knitting because, you know, like... I'm a simple person with simple ideas of cozy. And then they roll the theorize action, which allows the mystery to come to a dramatic conclusion. Is it the correct dramatic conclusion? The dice will tell. But this move is the way the game pivots into the final act to resolve the mystery. Not by guessing the keeper's puzzle, but by creating a puzzle whole cloth from the story so far. So, why did this game hook you? Murder, she wrote, had an illegitimate child with Riverdale that it refuses to acknowledge or pay for. And Shadow over Innsmouth is raising the child as if it were its own. Co-parenting with Miss Marple. So the setting is what got me, absolutely, because I'm that watching Masterpiece Theater murder mysteries with my mom kid. But also the theorized move itself, because other games might try to remove those planning and longer conversation parts to kind of streamline the action toward the plot. Blades in the Dark takes this approach, for instance, or just substitute roles for, for this kind of puzzle something. This this comes up a lot in your D20 game communities. Uh, can you just roll a die to solve the puzzle? Should you make players role play it back and forth? Who knows? Brindlewood Bay makes this exchange, the conversation that happens to put all of the these puzzle pieces together, a driver of the plot. It lifts the burden of intricate planning from the keeper's storytellers and pushes it forward with that conversation. It rewards puzzling through the, cl the clues through roleplay with a means to directly advance the story. It rewards clever ideas and cool ideas instead of fixed outcomes. It's neat because it's the only real mystery-focused game that I know of where the GM isn't creating the whole story. Every other specific mystery investigation game, the GM is like, I have a, pr I, I have come to you with the thing to solve. And this is like, nah, we're solving this mystery together, gang. And that's neat. Like, as a, as a forever GM, that is a thing that is rare and excites me. So what caught me, what hooked me, I really love the 
the whole concept of the game is built around solving a mystery. And it has really great GM advice. And I am here for that advice to, to take it to other games I run. And the first one, which admittedly is is more of an improv kind of thing for certain games. But you play to find out what happens. So you're supposed to be open to the story to unfold in new ways. And if the players have a cool idea, you're supposed to try and weave it in. Make the world and everything in it seem real. Every NPC is supposed to have at least three lines of description and a motivating goal. Each scene prompts to remind you to add details. Be fans of the Mavens. They are the stars. You should root for them. And that doesn't mean that they win every time. That doesn't mean that everything is easy. You challenge them in order to help them shine. Sometimes disclaim decision-making. If you're not sure what to do, ask the players. You're all trying to make a cool story together, and sometimes the players have a better idea than you. Keep it cozy. A big part of the game is the stark contrast of the evil in the background and the charming small-town life in the foreground. Make nighttime dangerous. What makes this game not just be murder she wrote is that the mavens will actually be in danger at times. During the day, it's like happy fun times, and at night, it's scary out here. One of the really unique pieces of advice they give you for this game is you keep dangerous characters occluded. So whenever the mavens are put into danger by a character, that character's identity is anonymous. They're wearing a mask or in the shadows. And even to you as the, the GM, until the players successfully theorize who they are, nobody knows who did it. And present the void as matter-of-factly. Like, it is better to present the occult side of things plainly without any extra theatrics. It makes a stark genre shift. It leaves room for the players to freak themselves out. You don't need to over-dramatize what's happening. The horror can speak for itself. You just have to let it. And I think those two particular pieces of advice are more unique to the setting. Like, those two don't translate as universally to every other game. But the first five pieces of advice I feel like you could take to any game that you play very, very easily. I'm going to speak in defense of Present the Void matter-of-factly for translating it to other games. A lot of times, A, you can get hung up on how to do the thing that is cool and big and flashy or scary and extra creepy or extra dark. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about that. An understatement can be a very useful narrative element element in any game. If you're talking about fantastical elements, if you're talking about horror elements, anything like that, I think you can still carry the core of that tenant to any different game you play. I think a lot of times, yes. I think sometimes there is room for the over-the-top. Oh, sure. If you're playing your luchador wrestling mutants and masterminds game, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So sometimes you need the creepy violin in the background. Sometimes you don't. Okay. Who is this game for? So do you fantasize about being able to retire? Do you enjoy Murder, She Wrote and Agatha Christie novels? Do you want to play a game that has fantastical and horror elements simmering just within reach, but still focuses on that cozy, deeply human and interpersonal? This is that game. Do you want to run a mystery game that invites everyone, including the person running it, to be just as in the dark about how the game ends until it reveals itself in the way the players tell the story? This game is for you. Unlike Hunter, where I have to sit here and come up with 20 different possible endings for the story, depending on what my lunatic players are going to do, and I have to actually construct all these clues here, I just have to like be in it and be ready to talk about knitting and whatever coffee shop they have created for themselves, and it's awesome. 
And sometimes we come up with a completely different answer and then you're like, man, that's really good. And then you have to insert that in. That's fun too. Yeah, sometimes you guys come up with an answer that's better than anything I've come up with. And I'm like, okay, let's take a 10 minute break while I figure out how that messes with the rest of my mystery. I will return. At least one time, the answer was an IED. (laughs) So, do you like games that want to protect and highlight that cozy little flame of hope and comfort that gives the characters the resolve they need to press on in the face of intrigue and danger? Then this game is for you. If you don't like that, you might be interested in The Between, which is a game that takes the mystery framework from this and puts it in gothic horror instead of a whodunit. It's Penny Dreadful instead of Murder, She Wrote, and that's by The Gauntlet. Moving on to the plays, The Thing from Magpie Games. This one was suggested and shared by Ben. So everybody, what's this game's deal? At its most basic, this is a Shakespearean tabletop game. Your storyteller slides into the role of playwright and your players play the actors. You are here to put on a play. However, being the dramatic and selfish types that you are, you all think you know better and want to rewrite the story to play out how you think it should. This game is a gentle competition between the actors, which are the players, either as a group or individually, depending on what they have in mind for the play, and the playwright, and you're competing to see whose vision will really shape the play at the end. If the players work together, they will probably be able to have their vision see the light of day and overwrite the playwright. If the players all have different visions, then it's going to be like a real flip of the coin, roll of the dice to see how this turns out. If they have different visions, it's going to be a weird Mad Libs plot. Which is kind of the idea. Yeah. See at the bottom of this section where we're going to talk about a weird Mad Libs plot. But in the meantime, you don't need technically to know any plays to participate in this. If you, for instance, were the person who was told to read a play out of a book and turns out you were supposed to read A Doll's House, but actually you read Hedda Gadler, but they were in the same book. And why didn't somebody say something about that before they just handed you the book? They probably did. You weren't paying attention anyway. You can collectively come up with your own play from scratch. And the game is clearly intended to allow you to do this. The rules as written support playing with existing plays, but there are other options. This game is all about retelling plays your way. You should read this game regardless of if you plan to play it. It's a wonderful romp. It's immensely creative, but I think it would be the worst afternoon of my life if I were forced to play it. It will, however, influence how I think about games moving forward. That said, if someone wants to write and play a full alien mod of this game, um, let me know. I'm in. This game is all about retelling plays your way. So how do you play? So this is actually a fairly rules-like game. Character creation is very simple. First, you decide what you would like your acting specialty to be. For example, the lead, the villain, the ham, the ingenue. Ingenue, thank Ingenue. you, says the theater nerd. There are only three stats named after the three rhetorical appeals, logos, pathos, and ethos. And you know how I know I'm a theater nerd? I didn't have to look that up. And most importantly, you name your character. Then you're done. Then the playwright tells you what play you're doing and the basic plot and where it takes place. And then the actors will bid on which character they want until everybody has a character. Every character not chosen gets played by the playwright. 
You then go through major scenes improvising the play. The playwright has a few ways to keep you on track, and you have a few ways to change the play, ranging from mild shift to dramatic changes, like adding new characters, killing off others, or saving someone who dies. You can even change the ending. So the more you act your part, and the more you play appropriately for the type of play that you are playing, the more points your playwright will give you, and you can use those points to get opportunities to roll and change the story. So for example, being funny or playing up the romance in a comedy will earn you points that then you can use to try and change things down the line. So why did it hook you? I'm a lifelong theater nerd and comic book super fan. I have always loved every time a comic had an e- a what if issue or a series where we see our favorite characters in a brand new way. P.S. Man, I loved the original Exiles comic book run. If you like comics and haven't read it, check it out. And this is those two things combine. What if Ophelia became queen? What if Puck replaced Bottom and lived forever after in the human lands? What if Godot actually showed the fuck up? Man, that is cool for me. Man, I would love to play in that. I would have so much fun. I also really like that they made it clear that Shakespeare had gender-swapped roles, and not only said you should feel okay doing it, but encouraged it in your own games. The ingenue doesn't need to be a woman any more than the lead has to be a man. Also, play the characters your group wants to play. You want to have a female Hamlet? Do it. Y'all, I'm into Ophelia murdering her way up through the Danish royals, becoming queen. I'm into that. It hooked me because it was clearly made with love. The author obviously knew his stuff and also sat down and you can tell he enjoyed writing this because it was something that he loved. I think that there are occasionally goes back and forth in some of the tabletop gaming communities, the role of narrative versus the role of hard mechanics and people trying to put these things at odds. You should never wade into those conversations outside of just coming to a better understanding for yourself how you feel about each of these things in your game and expanding your gaming experience. But I think taking every opportunity that you can, if you enjoy the more narrative aspects, to learn more about narrative, about what goes into making stories, then I think you will have a richer gaming storytelling experience down the line. And I think this was written to break that down and play with those elements. And therefore, as Ben was saying, this is a great read from the perspective of understanding more about those things, especially because, as Ryan has said, it was made by someone who truly enjoys it and enjoys talking about it, and that will come through. So who is this game for? Are you a theater nerd? Were you ever in an improv troupe? Not just an improv group, but one that took itself a little seriously and was definitely a troupe, not a group. Do you like tabletop games? If you answered yes to all three questions, then here it is, the game for you. If you answered yes to any two, you might enjoy it if you're surrounded by excited friends. But if you answer no to two or more, then just move on. Most particularly, this is for people who have a shared knowledge of certain plays. It really only works if everyone has at least one play that they all know. It assumes and gives suggestions for Shakespeare, but any shared theatrical lexicon will do. Get a group who loves musicals and everyone wants to make rent. In 20 minutes, everyone will be laughing their heads off. Want to retell Moulin Rouge where no one dies of tuberculosis and the Duke gets repeatedly kicked in the nuts while still having singing montages? Well, guess what, friends? You could do that here. So the disheveled late perpetually faking it to make it 
cousin of this game where you don't have to know any plays is Oliver Darkshire's Exit Stage Left Chased by a Bear. We'll share the link to that to where they posted it on Twitter. It's a one-page RPG. You can play it with friends or alone. Your character is an actor in a Shakespeare play who did not learn their lines and are faking it best they can just by keeping track of costume changes. You accumulate random events with dice rolls to fill tracks on your sheet and indeed the game may well end with you getting chased off the stage by a bear and never being heard from again. But the play will be a roaring success. I really like that one of the tracks in Exit Stage Left Chased by a Bear is the audience's confusion about what's happening in the play. In the plays of thing, there is an alt mode that he talks about in the rules as though it is just a regular way the game is to be played. And that alt mode is you guys can completely create a on-the-spot improvisational play. You like you don't have to do a real play. You can have it be whatever you want. You can make up your own. That technically fits within the rules and I think would be a lot of fun even for people who aren't theater nerds. Like I think you're going to create a good experience for everybody if you do this. The bad side is in order to play this game, you have to know all the characters are ahead of time. You have to know what their roles are ahead of time. You have to have lines ahead of time that the actors need to hit. You have to have scenes and a plot and a location and all of this. And so if you want to do the make it up as you go, your playwright, your GM is going to have a lot of free work to do. Like a lot. But that said, I think if you at least pick a genre that everyone is familiar with. Like, you know, Ben said, if we all do horror and we remake Alien, we if even if we ha- are only passively familiar with the movie, but we know horror tropes, we could make it a long way in that. Sure. All right. Finally, The Empire Undying. The Empire Undying from Lara Turner of Glaive Gizarm Games. Helen was sold, as soon as she got to the subtitle, a light RPG about hot people and dead planets. And I was sold as soon as she told me one of the core competencies is literally cool necromancy. Also, Glaive Gizarm Games wins first prize for best company tagline, games that hook you and stab you, because that's what a Gizarm does. What the hell is a Gizarm? It's a type of polearm that has a hook and a blade on it to both hook you and then stab you. Fun fact, in Pathfinder, they have these evil wizards called Rune Lords, and for some reason, they each have a favored polearm as their weapon. And in one of the modules, it's a geese arm, which means you end up with like stacks of these magical geese arms, but no one ever takes a specialty in that. So you just have them. They're there. Anyway, what's this game's deal? So this game's deal is aesthetic. That's it. it. That's the entire deal. Aesthetic and the freedom to take that aesthetic and run with it in a setting where the only real guidelines are that everything under the bony claws of the Empire is objectively heinous, weird, and distressingly organic, from the flesh-crafted spaceships to the necromantic magic tech that drives them. Your characters are functionaries of a non-functional but too undead-to-die evil empire that has blanketed the stars in death and and ruin, and whether that means they're district operatives or planetary governors, they have looked at the choices of cog in the machine or ground between the cogs of the machine, resurrected as a shambling corpse, and fed the machine, and they decided that was no choice at all. Which is not to say that the characters are necessarily happy about it. No one's really happy about much of, well, anything in the Empire Undying. But whatever the outlet of their frustrations, and 
We will get a little bit more into that in a moment. The character's average working day will either be serving the Empire as one of its billions of elite necromancers or as the badass Death Knight that protects them. This is the first paragraph of the game. When you open the book, this is the first thing you see. You climb aboard the shuttle, which is intended to convey you off this dingy planet embedded in the metal walls of the shuttle are bones, sun-bleached and carved with innumerable runes of protection. The only seats seem comfortable enough, although they have the familiar texture of human flesh leather tattooed over and over in a crabbed, spiky hand. What little is legible is clearly reproductions of necromantic theorems, the very ones which hold your ever-crumbling but never-dying empire together. There is no seat at the control console, merely a severed head mummified by time on a pike, its milky white eyes briefly alight upon you, and the door you entered in slides closed with a distressingly organic sound. It fucking sucks. Just an abysmal experience, and the chairs make your ass hurt after ten minutes. But if you're going to be a necromancer, there's a whole, like, aesthetic to deal with. Hope you like skulls, fucker. I love it. I love it so much. I love it. Like, it just, that tells you everything you need to know about this game. Also, he said, he said the book, I must emphasize, we're talking about 10 pages here. We're talking about a zine. Yes. Um, it's, <laughs> book is a strong word. Right. Like, you can hop in and start playing after five minutes. I'm good. It's good. Go get it. Go buy it now. This game aims to be a one-shot or a few-shot. There isn't much progression here. But if you were prepared to roll up your sleeves and do some world building, you could build enough of a setting for an episodic campaign that maybe would blossom into something more, but you'd have to do a little work. So, how do you play? This game is designed to get you up and running quickly. It includes some quick plot options to generate. You can use a pair of D10s if you're looking for inspiration. Sure thing here is that your character will either be a necromancer or a knight, but the details are otherwise up to you. So this game cites some mechanical inspiration from Lasers and Feelings by John Harper. Woo! And that's with your character number. You pick a number between two and nine. The lower your number, the more intelligent you are and the less physical. And the higher your number, the tougher and more physical you are, but not as smart. And a number in the middle is a balance between the two. And you can just pick that number. You should just follow your heart here. So ultimately, you're going to make a pool of D10s, plus or minus some smaller or larger dice from equipment, and then roll, aiming to get higher than your character number for checks that use smarts, and lower than your number for checks that use toughness. Two or more successes is called a full success. One is a partial success, and none is a failure. There are two principal character types necromancers and knights who defend them. You pick one, and the rules walk you through how that will affect the other mechanics and decisions you may make along the way. The rest of the sheet, just aspects. That is, brief sentences or descriptors that snappily convey an element of your character for mechanical benefit. You are guided through what type of aspects you'll be picking as you create your character. One, for instance, describes a unique expression of your character's core competency. Keep in mind, those are cool necromancy or badass weaponry. That's it. Those are the only two options. Another aspect is going to be a relationship aspect, something that embeds your character in the group by connecting them to another player. I'll add, whenever I find aspects in a game or aspects 
aspect like mechanics in a game, I always have to double check a few times exactly how they are used mechanically to get a benefit, to get a sense of what kind of wording or elements of the character will be most useful. Some games just turn you loose and they kind of give you a vague explanation of, of how aspects work and you kind of have to find out in play that, that you kind of worded yours wrong. But the rules here do a really great job, I think, of giving you that framework up front for what role aspects are going to play in the game and how to get the most use out of them. Also, the return of the plot clock! So... They added interesting twist on it here. There isn't a competing clock or another party working against you where you can fail. Instead, the more things that go wrong, the more X's you put on the clock and the worse the outcome will be. So you can succeed, but it may be a bloody pirate attrition-based victory. So bad things happen. The Empire Undying is a bad place. Injury is represented by crossed out aspects and crossing out all of your aspects mean your character is taken out in some capacity and removed from the scene. Recovering those aspects can be accomplished either based on some luck with the dice, magic, the cinematic passage of time, or an intimate moment with another character, up to and including sex. Let's be real clear. It's not just up to and including sex. This game expects sex to be a part of it. Like It is explicit. Yeah. Yep. The hot Very and clearly. sexy is included everywhere. It mentions orgies. And I would really love to play this game. I think this game and the setting and this aesthetic are all like, I'm here for it. But one of my veils is that I just really don't want sex roleplayed in my games. Watching my friends roleplay eroticism is just not fun for me. It's really uncomfortable. But it's a core tenet to this game. So I could only play this game if I were to have a session zero with my group and find another way to heal characters in order to play. Or if the group liked that part of the aesthetic and wanted necromancer orgies, I would just wait until they were done with this game. I would sit out. What I would propose for this game is to get at the heart of what that is supposed to be, isolate the, the problematic element, and then see if you can swap it. And I think we can here. I would say what we did in this game was we swap out that line and say that each character has their own outlet that will fulfill the mechanical role sex does in game as well as the narrative role, which in this case is to give you something that helps you feel alive in this horrific dead place where you're forced to exist. So a personal hobby, a small personal goal, something that as long as they have it, they can tolerate another day of, I am a cog in an engine of ruin that seeks to unmake existence in its own image and deny itself even the mercy of a final death to escape its own horror. So for instance, maybe a character has or is slowly acquiring the pieces for a full silk bedspread, fitted sheet, top sheet, duvet, two pillowcases. Yes, it's mutant alien spider silk because no, you can't get five fucking minutes of peace from everything being 20% more grim and monstrous than it needs to be. But it's not extruded collagen filaments from the reclamation processors. It is related to collagen, but it has never at any point been the skin of something that had eyes that I may have had to look into at one time, or even more exotic, maybe linen. And it is their prized possession, this thing that they can sleep on that is not and has never been human skin. And they can go back to their quarters at the end of the day and finally have some time to themselves away from the bone servitors and the severed head computers. And that is what gets them through the day without murdering or unmurdering any more people than is strictly required. P.S. I love the idea of a necromancer obsessed with 
just owning something that was never alive. And also, that was a rant worthy of Helen's spells. So just think Warhammer, but like 50% more Baroque morbidity. And just to bring back the interpersonal element to make this recovery of role-playing opportunity, you could also throw in that both characters recover by sharing their outlet with another character. So perhaps one character gives another character a fresh jar of some suspicious waxy resin because they know that the character frequently plays the violin after a mission and the stuff might work for resin it does and shall ride back to headquarters except for the silent somber yet resolute sound of a violin as the character plays for the rest so why did this game hook you so it's probably not fair that i'm sassy at 40k and then turn around and say that i adore this setting because grim dark existential horror in space are definitely some keywords these two games share that said this one just feels more fun to me you're not beholden to decades of contradictory lore or messy forum fandom forum brawls and bullshit it's a light game you have to do some potentially some setting building to run a campaign but the aesthetic comes through so strongly no one is going to sit down at the table and have trouble coming to grips with the character that they are playing the character of the game i really feel that and also the irreverent biting witty tone that comes through the writing really helps this this game is ripe for gallows humor and poignant commentary about surviving an inhumane imperial hellscape where all life is just fodder for a machine of power this game is grim but it also doesn't take itself too seriously it is self-aware and i really prefer that this game hooked me because i love grim dark anything and i love space anything and i love silly magic anything but in order to get those three things together usually i have to wade through some almost impossibly clunky gritty long rule system that is just chunky and this this game is like no we have two pages of rules go forth have fun be free I'll even add into that. Necromantic magic doesn't have rules outside of here is how you make a dice pool. I don't need to tell you anything else. If you say you're a necromancer and this is what you want to do, here is how you make a dice pool. Go for it. All right. So who is this game for? Do you want to play a weird, grimdark, magitech space game with the potential for mystery and drama and packed with gallows humor? Uh, do you look for games with a potential romance element or a sex element that's built into the mechanics? This has that. And if you don't want that specifically, it is replaceable. This game is for people who want grim, grim, grim without a game that takes itself too seriously. If that's appealing, this may be for you. I love grim aesthetics, but I get really tired of my games being made of sadness all the time. This game really is the perfect opportunity for grim humor. You don't have to worry about always being prepared with a line like, even in death, I serve the Omnisaya or prepare to meet my maker. You can say those things, but then in the other room, like a bone servitor Roomba gets into a fight the, with the death that has human hands for feet and you have to go break that up. Like, I'm into that. If any of our listeners have ever played the computer game RuneScape, the main guy who you meet, you know, that laughing gallows humor, that running thing that is the early stages of RuneScape is just this whole setting. And I am in for that. All right. 
Well, I'm Ryan, the necromantic rules guy. I'm Ben, the whodunit player. I'm Helen, the polearm-wielding storyteller. And I'm Jared, the improv troop with an E, Game Master, and together we are the Starting Equipment Podcast. Thank you for listening to our episode on Indie Darlings. Yeah, Go support small content creators. They're important. Yes, and again, we will have all of these links on our website. Come find the fun and the magic we make with the stories told in this world we create. So come down, it's only right.